Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Upholding the Truth, with a message titled, God's People at Prayer. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Leonard Ravenhill wrote the following lines. The church has many organizers, but few agonizers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many resters, but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. A worldly Christian will stop praying, and a praying Christian will stop worldliness. Ties may build a church, but tears will give it life. In the matter of effective praying, never have so many left, so much to so few. Brethren, let us pray. See, prayer is central to our activity as God's people. Over and over again, the Bible both tells of the faithful prayers of God's people and reminds us that we should be praying. Listen to the prophet Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 tells us to pray without ceasing. Philippians 4.6 tells us to be anxious for nothing, but instead to pray about everything. 1 Peter 3.12 tells us that God's ears are always open to the prayers of his people. Romans 8.26 reminds us that we may be weak in prayer, but the Holy Spirit will help us when we pray. And with that in mind, Jude 20 urges us to pray in the Spirit. James 4 verse 1 says that we do not have because we do not ask. And Jesus promised us in Matthew 21 verse 22 that we will have whatever we ask for in prayer. We are to pray. What's holding us back? Prayer is central to our activity as God's people. I find the flow of 1 Timothy to be quite natural. The book's about holding out the truth of God to a lost world. It begins by warning against false teaching in the church, Truth has to be understood and defended internally. Then 1 Timothy urges us strongly to be active in sharing our faith. And the way it begins is it begins by inviting us to pray. And with that, Paul comes to the section that we're going to discuss today. And that's found in 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 10. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So let's first observe that God desires his people to pray. And the Greek word that is translated as desire, you know, in our text, it's, it's a strong verb, and it could easily be translated as demand. Prayer is an obligation. It's a necessary function for every local church. Notice that Paul states it should happen in every place. And it's hard not to miss the similarity between verse 8 and verse 1. You know, in verse 1, we were told to pray for all people, and in verse 8, in every place. Just a little thought will help us to see how universal Paul intends that Christian prayer should become. We pray for all people in every place. No doubt Paul has two things in mind. First, he has in mind the global expansion of the church. Every place, every city on earth will one day have a local church praying to God from that place. But Paul may also have been thinking about how the local church was structured. See, the early church, for example, you know, the church in Ephesus 
would have had no church building as we do today. And so the church met at two levels. First of all, they would have met in some wealthy patron's home, a home that would have housed several hundred people. And secondly, they would have met in more modest homes where only a few would be able to meet. And that's really not unlike many churches today. They meet on Sunday in large places, and they meet throughout the week in countless homes. But wherever believers meet in any city, God wants the earth to be filled with prayer. See, I have no doubt that Paul was echoing the words of the prophet, Malachi 1 verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Did you know that wherever you meet in prayer, you're a part of fulfilling Malachi's prophecy? And so getting back to 1 Timothy 2 verse 8, I desire that in every place men should pray. Now, we could leave it at this, but you know our text really doesn't. And that's because with prayer comes certain dangers. In Matthew 18, Jesus told the story of two men who went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And as the Pharisee was praying, he glanced over at the tax collector and in his heart he experienced the exquisite pleasure of his moral superiority over that man. And then moved by pride and vanity, began thanking and praising and glorifying God that he wasn't like that man. But as the tax collector was praying, he glanced at no one. In fact, he couldn't even look up to heaven. And what's more, he was literally pounding his fists against his chest, conscious of the fact that the weight of God was against him because of his sins. His prayer was, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the point that Jesus was making was that the Pharisee, who, by the way, was a man of prayer, was in fact, through his praying, becoming more alienated before God all the time. But his prayers made him think he was close to God so that Jesus could actually say that, tax collectors and prostitutes and Roman soldiers and and general everyday variety sinners had a greater chance of getting to heaven than this disciplined and praying Pharisee. Once we see this in Jesus' teaching, we recognize that not only does God want us to pray, but he's intent on warning us that with prayer comes a great many dangers. So let's start with the dangers for men. Again, verse 8, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. See, when this verse uses the word men, it means males. The Greek word refers specifically to men. There's something particular that men need to know when they pray. See, notice, first of all, they are to lift up holy hands in prayer. It might be tempting here to think that this passage is commending a certain posture in praying, but I think that misses the point entirely. The Bible commends many postures in praying, including bowing, kneeling, standing, or even lying flat on our faces before God. But the practice of standing with lifted hands in prayer, well, that was a practice quite often used in the early church. And various artworks found in the Roman catacombs, where Christians would meet secretly for worship, shows believers lifting up their hands in praise. But again, I don't think that's the emphasis here. The emphasis is on lifting up hands that are holy. See, the emphasis is on holy hands, not on a prayer posture. And that's what Paul's getting at when he mentions holy hands and then specifically addresses this to the men of the church. 
Well, in order to understand that, let's go back to the Old Testament to see what it says about worship, about holiness, and about the hands. In Exodus 30, whenever Aaron, the priest, or his son, went into the tabernacle, which was the place of prayer and worship, according to Exodus 30, verse 19, they were to wash their hands. In other words, clean hands were required as a prerequisite for leadership in worship. It's an image of a priest with clean hands, and it becomes a fundamental issue in the Bible. Consider, for example, Psalm 24, 3-4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Now, the hill of the Lord is the temple mount. The priests who are able to ascend must have clean hands in which the hands are an external symbol of an internal pure heart. And this is seen in truthful speech, the lack of deceit towards others. So clean hands is an outward expression of the inward spiritual condition which God demands of those who give leadership in worship and prayer. Let's look at one more example. It's Isaiah 1.15. It's a passage in which God speaks to the leaders and the priests in Israel. Here's what it says. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So here you have an image where the very hands of the leaders in Israel have abused the poor and denied Israel of justice, and God pictures their hands as those who have held a dagger in their hands, and they've murdered, and these hands are the same hands that are now raised in worship to prayer, and God hates that. See, when we discussed the false teaching in chapter 1, we saw that two elders, Hymenaeus and Alexander, along with other elders, were teaching false doctrines, were blaspheming God, teaching a doctrine of works, making it hard for sinners to come to faith, upsetting the faith of some. Now, these same men had come before God, and they led in worship and prayer, and they were lifting up hands before God. So what's verse 8 all about? It's about hypocrisy. It's about acting one way and then acting another. It's about pretend holiness. You get leaders who have upset the church and then pretend to care for it in prayer. Unclean hands. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand So we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Neufeld, Alaphagain's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune, at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available. So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca. We've all met people like that, haven't we? People who pretend to be pious and at the same time are immoral or deceitful or hurtful, or who abuse power and then lead in prayer. And that destroys. Paul's not done. He adds that holy hands are required, 
and that when they be lifted, there be no anger or quarreling. You know, John Kelvin thought that since, you know, chapter 1, verse 7 said that false teachers claim to be teachers of the law, it probably meant they were Judaizers, and that is that they were teaching that one had to keep Jewish distinctiveness in order to be right with God. Yet through the gospel of grace, many Gentiles had found their way into the church, and the Judaizers were upsetting the faith of many, and this led to anger and quarreling. And if that was the case, we have here not only hypocrisy, but also pride. But in truth, we don't know the reason for the anger, but it was real. See, I want you to go ahead to 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, where Paul gives qualifications for eldership. And there he warns against violent men and quarrelsome men. So we need to stop and ask a question. Don't women have problems with hypocrisy and pride just as men do? And the answer is yes. There's a sense in which verse 8 is rightly applied to both genders. We're warned that purity and holiness is the attitude that we must bring in prayer. But the sins of anger and argument and competitiveness, you know, they have a particular relevance for men. And it's not just about arguments regarding doctrine or disputes in the church, although men are quite prone to that. It's about all of your life, that you're to become a gentle man rather than an angry man. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. See, men who treat their wives with anger or jealousy or badly will find that their prayers are hindered and not answered. And why is that? Because when you ascend the hill of the Lord, your hands are unclean. So let's move now to the dangers for women, and that's in verses 9 and 10. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So at first blush, it might look like this passage is about prayer for men and then about clothing for women, but a close analysis of this text proves it's not so. You'll also notice that verse 9 begins with the word likewise. Well, here we might ask, likewise to what? In fact, there's no verb here, so, so we have to supply one. We know that It can't be the verb to adorn in verse 9 because that wouldn't make sense. Likewise to the men. Women, watch out how you dress. No, that makes no grammatical sense. So we're left with the verb in verse 8, which is the verb to pray. So verse 9 should be read in this way. I desire men should pray, and likewise, I desire that women should pray. And then what follows are gender-specific dangers for women at prayer. And at the outset, I need to confess that I'm a bit anxious about preaching this text. See, I'm reminded that one of the greatest preachers ever, John Chrysostom, living and preaching in the ancient city of Constantinople, preached on this text with the empress Eudoxia sitting there, and she was furious with him, and she was so furious she had him run out of town and so abused that he died. That day she was sitting in the church, and he really let loose about this matter of clothing And she was adorned to the maximum, and she fought back. So what's going on here? Now, first of all, I want you to notice the verb adorn. Kind of a strange word, wouldn't you say? We're holding a modern translation, and we have to ask why the translators didn't use a word like clothe. You know, I, for instance, have never asked my wife, Kathy, what will you adorn yourself with today? 
She'd probably ask me if I was born in 1611 or something like that. It's an old English word. But the reason our translators chose that word is because they were translating a Greek word, cosmeo, from which we get our English word, cosmetics. Now, of course, we talk about putting a dress on and putting on lipstick and eyeshadow in the same way, but we know that we use it slightly differently. And the word cosmeo has very much the idea of to decorate or to make beautiful. The question here has less to do with clothing or hairstyles, and it has everything to do with what a woman uses to make herself beautiful. And to that, Paul responds by saying, make yourself beautiful with modesty and with self-control. And this, I think, must have been as pointed to the women in the church as verse 8 was to the men of the church. You see, the church in Ephesus was hard-pressed by a very sensuous and sexualized culture. And the most notable feature of Ephesus was it boasted what has now been called one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. At the far northern end of the city was the Temple of Diana. It was a structure about four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens. It was believed that the image of the goddess Diana had fallen directly from heaven, and she was depicted as a woman with many breasts, and so she was seen as the goddess who inspired a fertility cult that housed a thousand sacred temple prostitutes dressed in such a way as to arouse the passions. And with it were many forms of deviant sexual behavior, all thought to be pathways to spirituality and enlightenment. And what a contrast. See, on the one hand is the goddess of pornography, and on the other is what Christ wants for godly women. And Paul's portraying a contrast between Christian spirituality and pagan spirituality. And this is relevant for us today. Pornography and sensuality are exploding on every public medium. And there are many women, Christian women, who dress provocatively, that is, In today's sensuous world, they believe they won't be able to find a man unless they keep their necklines low and their hemlines high. But women, let me ask you, if in this way you attract a man with his head, as it were, on a swivel, you'll never have a man whose head is but anything but on a swivel. And in this way, Paul attacks the first issue for women. It's the issue of sensuality. You can't claim to be a woman of faith and virtue and dress provocatively. You should be known as a woman who dresses modestly. Are you? When people think of you, is that what comes to mind? See, women, listen to me. As a man who's been married for many years, you can dress so that you look classy and beautiful without looking provocative. You can make yourself beautiful in a way that's consistent with godliness. And do you know what kind of a man you're going to attract? It's a godly one whose head is not on a swivel. So men and women, listen up. First, men, you know, we're often part of the problem. By judging a woman on her external appearance, we try to make them slaves of their appearance. And women, by making your body a showpiece, you're sexualizing every relationship you have. This very thing destroys the primacy of worship and prayer. It makes a lie to the claim that you are a woman of God. Now, we have pictures from the ancient world that shows wealthy women whose hair was intricately braided with gold and pearls, braided right into the hair, every inch apart, and you would shimmer with wealth and beauty. In order to get your hair done that way, it would require at least four attendants working about five hours. The costs were prohibitive. 
If Paul, on the one hand, addresses sensuality, he now addresses extravagance. We know that in the first century, many women were powerful, they owned huge businesses, many were well-educated, were extremely wealthy. In a number of texts in Acts, Luke tells of Paul winning a number of those women to Christ. They became followers of Jesus, they were a part of the church. But Paul says, if you dress in that worldly fashion, you'll not look like a servant of Jesus. In fact, if the second sin of men is pride, this extravagance in dress is the female version of exactly the same thing. So let's be clear. God is not opposed to a woman beautifying herself, but he does ask every woman to ask what kind of a statement they are making in prayer. And just like men, women are also asked to give an account of the cleanness of their hands as they go to the place of prayer. See, prayer is central to the activity of God. If anything marks us, it should be prayer. And indeed, prayer defines us, it shapes us. And as we've seen, it can expose our hypocrisy and challenge us to look at our hands and ask, are they clean? See, the opportunity of prayer is quite simply this. Will our prayerfulness expose our hypocrisy or will it expose our authenticity? May it expose us as godly people and as godly people, may we enter into the presence of God and ask him to meet us and to do the things that we ask for. May this be the kind of prayer that is a part of the Church of Jesus Christ. Thanks, John. Let me ask you, is it true to suggest that just because you pray doesn't necessarily make you spiritual? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, that's exactly what Jesus taught, right? The publican and the Pharisee in the place of prayer and uh, the Pharisee is praying, and uh, he is more alienated from God than ever before because of his ungodly way of praying. And, um, you know, this is just a fact. And so uh, we need to recognize that when we pray, we have to approach God in the way in which he has told us to approach him. Uh, We do it through the blood of Christ. We do it in humility. Uh, We do it in such a way that renounces our own sins and accepts God's authority in our lives. So all of these things are very important. So let's pray. Let's pray more urgently than ever before, but let's do it in holiness. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. As we do every October, this year we're offering a 2022 scripture calendar based upon Dr. Neufeld's recent book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Throughout the year, you'll be reminded of God's great provision for those who believe, featuring wonderful pictures of crosses around the world, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and passages of scripture that remind us of all the benefits of our salvation. I believe this is one of Back of the Bible Canada's best scripture calendars, and it's yours for free as our gift. Just call to request your copy today as quantities are limited. We pray this will be an inspiration to express gratitude to God throughout 2022. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Additional calendars to your free calendar are also available at $10 each.